Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Today we have, I believe, yeah, nine questions spanning things about therapy itself, um, about recovering from um, sexual abuse, suicidal thoughts, and also uh, using cannabis to manage our anxieties. So without further ado, let's jump into those. Oh, actually, with some further ado, if you're looking to get your question answered, for those in the $20 tier and above over on my Patreon page, each and every month, I have a live stream where I answer your questions, and those go for about three hours or so. There's also a Discord server where you can chat with other members of our community, and we all also have extra videos over there, all sorts of good things. So you can go over to patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton and check it out. Okay, let's get into this week's questions. And the first question says, hey, Katie, is it normal for clients to do a lot, I mean a lot, of research about therapy, like the modalities, the assignment process, what specifically therapists are trained on, etc. I feel like by looking into every single detail that I can think of, I know all of my therapist's quote-unquote secrets, and like I'm somehow cheating the system, lol. Is this a bad thing? Is it bad for clients to know too much? Obviously, therapists get therapy too, so I know it can still be effective if you know a lot. But could what I'm doing be a bad thing? Or could it maybe mean that I should consider going into the career because I'm really interested in it? This is something I've considered, but I'm not sure yet. Thank you for any thoughts you have in this. Okay, I thought this was a great question. And I do know that a lot of you do your research, which I have at face value. I have no problem with people looking into the therapist that they're considering hiring, looking into the different types of therapy and what that really means. I think having an idea behind the scenes of what therapy is supposed to be, what it should cost, what the different options are, all of that is all fine and dandy. I don't think there are any problems with that. However, when we feel like we're doing it in an obsessive way, meaning if we don't continue doing the research or reading about it or stuff like that, our anxiety goes up, it could be a problem. That could be part of obsessive compulsive disorder, just as an example. I also think it could be a defense mechanism. Maybe we tend to be more of, I forget the word, it's like when we want to, oh, intellectualization, when we want to intellectualize everything, right? 
instead of letting ourselves feel something and participate in something, we we seek to understand it at a very detailed level. And we make it out to be like, well, it, you know, this only is effective for X number of people. And I don't know if that's going to, I'm going to be one of those people, right? We don't really let ourselves participate. Instead, we overanalyze it. Does that make sense? Also, if we feel like it's getting in the way of us participating in therapy. Now, as a therapist, I honestly think that in some ways being a therapist is beneficial, but in a lot of ways, it's like detrimental to my own therapeutic work because sometimes I'm like, oh, they're just doing this thing or, oh, they're just doing that thing. It can make it so that I don't get to participate in a real way, meaning I don't get to just let it happen and see what comes up for me because I can be in my head too much. I can be thinking about it too much. I can know too much about it so that almost the like magic of therapy is lost on me. Does that make sense? But overall, I don't think it's a bad thing. You don't really know all of your therapist secrets because therapy is really an art form. I believe that the way that we interact with patients and how we get answers and how we ask questions and the different types of you know modalities we might pull from. And when we use the term modalities, if you don't know what we're what we're referencing, that just really means different types of therapy. For example, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, uh, dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, you know, schema, somatic experiencing, all those different EMDR, those are all different modalities. And even if we know about them, we don't always know what our therapist is doing. But I do know as a therapist, sometimes that can get in the way and I can be like, oh, they're just doing X, Y, or Z. And then it, it, I can kind of be more resistant. It can make it more difficult to push through the defense mechanisms, okay? Um, but if you find you're doing this out of anxiety or you're doing this because you feel almost like a compulsion, like your anxiety builds until you do more research, that's where I think it's really a problem. Or if you feel like it's impeding your therapy because knowing so much isn't necessarily bad, but if knowing so much means that you can't participate as openly, then it is a problem. Do you see what I mean? And so only you're going to know the answer to this. So if anybody out there is doing a ton of research about therapy and what it means to be a therapist and what it would mean to participate in therapy and all the different types, if you find that that doesn't help you and it might be hindering you, then it might be time to put a pause on that and see if we can stop doing that and instead let ourselves feel it meaning that in order to pick the right therapist, yes, we're going to want to make sure they can treat us for the issue that we're having. But aside from that, we want to make sure we like them. We feel like they hear us. They see us. Um, they're well-informed and they listen. You know, all of that's really what's most important, that connection, that therapeutic relationship. And no amount of research or different types of modality knowledge is going to make that better. Okay. I hope that makes sense. Now, there was a comment on this that says, I would like to add on here. I also read a lot about therapy, therapeutic relationships, and different modalities, but that's to understand my own journey. Okay. However, my therapist has once told me not to read a lot as that brings up a lot of resistance. It can, like I said, and that I'm being my own therapist and not allowing him to do his work. Oh, okay. We'll talk about that. From my perspective, I'm doing it because I don't want to leave any stone unturned in my healing journey. Now, to my point earlier, it's okay to want to know about it and want to understand and to be able to make good decisions and to kind of see what the process is so you are ensured that you're participating fully. That sounds like what you want. You don't want to leave any stone unturned. So you want to make sure that you're not leaving something out. However, what your therapist is saying is that it can bring up resistance because the defense mechanisms can jump in there because they're aware of what's happening. It's almost that 
you know, like suspension of disbelief. They talk about that when you're watching films, right? You're like, oh, I used to say this to myself because I don't like being scared. So when I watch scary movies, I'd be like, oh, but she's not really scared because she knows what's going to happen. And they filmed this scene like five different times. And so it's okay. She knows the person's going to jump out or try to kill her or whatever, right? And it's all fake. And I would tell myself that so that I wouldn't be scared. In therapy, it's the same kind of thing where we can tell ourselves, well, I know that the next step, because this is a cognitive behavioral tool, the therapist is going to ask me this, that, and the other. And okay, I can do that. I can, that's fine. And it like takes away the ability for us just to participate and have that suspension of disbelief or whatever you want to call it. But allowing the therapist to kind of take us on a journey of self-discovery because we can't do it on our own. And by us thinking that us knowing the next steps is going to make it move along more quickly or make sure it's more thorough is kind of getting in the way. It's not allowing for the organic development because where things are quote unquote supposed to go doesn't always happen. And it's the therapist's job to ensure that we're still tracking toward whatever, you know, whatever we're working on. And when we're so close to it, being the person who's affected by the struggle, the mental illness, the whatever, we can't see that. And so by us thinking that we're going to know and we can make sure we go in the right direction or we can make sure we touch on all these things, we're really not letting the therapy work for us. Instead, we're trying to work it. Does that make sense? I don't know if that is like clear because I can see the, the a comment coming back that's like, well, but don't, shouldn't we be working in therapy? Yes, of course we should. But there is some magic to not knowing that suspension, right? The suspension of disbelief. So the suspension of extra knowledge, just like participating. Like, okay, maybe that doesn't make sense, but let me give you an example of my own personal life. So recently I've started EMDR therapy. I don't do EMDR. I understand it at a base level. I'm not trained in it. I'm not certified. I don't practice it. Before doing this, all the therapies that I have participated in have been some form of talk therapy. Like I had a therapist that was very CBT driven. I've had a therapist who was very like, uh, I call it family dynamic driven. Um, I've had done a ton of different, but it's all talk based. Okay. I've never done EMDR. Doing this with my therapist, because I don't really understand what's happening. I don't know it fully. And I haven't researched it more to deep have a deeper understanding. I could even call some of my colleagues and be like, hey, what's this? I haven't done any of that. And I find that it's kind of easier for me to participate in it because I don't know. And every once in a while, I ask my therapist, I'm like, am I doing this right? Because like, I feel like my mind is going everywhere. And she's like, no, no, that's that's what it's supposed to do. Just let it go and just tell me where it goes. I'm like, okay. If I knew what was supposed to be happening or the way that I thought it quote unquote should be rolling out, I might get in my own way. As my mind tries to wander to this other memory that might be important, but it seems kind of silly to me, I might not let it go there. I'll try to pull it into something else. And my therapist last week, when I asked her about it, said, that's actually when you are kind of getting in the way of it working. It's good to really let your mind take you where it needs to go. It like organically knows what needs to be processed. Magic, right? And so if we know too much, we push back too much and we get in the way, then there's going to be more resistance and we can kind of, without realizing it, put roadblocks in our own path, okay? And your therapist saying it's not allowing him to do his work. You're, it's like, almost like too many cooks in the kitchen, right? If we're both trying to help you and you're trying to play therapist also, your therapist can't be the therapist. We can't have two ther- like dueling therapists like going at the same time. So I do see that perspective. I think I would just, if 
since it's getting in the way, your therapist feels like it's getting in the way, can we suspend this like intensive research, reading about it, thinking about it, wanting to learn more? Can we stop now that we've found a therapist we think there's a good fit with? Because at that point, I honestly don't think there's more that we need to know. As long as we can pick a modality that seems to suit us for what we're working on, and we can pick a clinician that we connect with and we feel really gets us and can help us work through these things, at that point, it's almost like you're on the ride, like let go and let it happen. And I know easier said than done. There's always going to be defense mechanisms, but I think this is one of yours. I think these are defense mechanisms. I think this is kind of our way of like intellectualizing the entire situation. But those are just my thoughts. You know, I probably, I've never had a patient be that into it where they really research it, but I have had them tell me that, I mean, I've had uh, people that I've seen who are also in school to become a therapist, like getting their master's. So there is that level too. Um, But I think this is more of a defense mechanism. I think we're getting in our own way. Okay. Do you struggle with attachment? I am hosting a mental health workshop on all things attachment. We'll figure out what attachment style we have why we can struggle with attachment, how our attachment style could be affecting our relationships, and most importantly, we will learn solutions and resources to heal. Click the link if you're interested in learning more. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hey, Katie, just a curious question. What would you consider low, medium, or high risk if you have thoughts, plans, and means, but no intent? Now, this is in reference to suicide, I'm I'm sure, even though it doesn't say If you had plans and means, but no thought or intent, or if you have thoughts and plans and intent, but no means. Now, when it comes to suicide risk, we are always trained to assess for those things. The things they're mentioning, like thoughts of suicide, that would be what we'd call suicidal ideation. Meaning I think about it or the thoughts pop up, they can feel like intrusive thoughts, but they, they go away. Okay. Just ideation. There's no plan. I don't have the means to do it, and I don't have a an intention, like a timeline to do it, okay? Those are the three things we're looking for. Now, the more of those things we have, the worse and more dangerous it gets. If we have a plan, but no means, if we have the plan and the means, no intent, we're just creeping up on that medium into high risk. Does that make sense? And so low risk to me is suicidal ideation. So many people have what I would call passive thoughts of suicide. Then we move into the more active thoughts where we have plans. Okay, a lot of my patients over the years have had plans of suicide. And I don't say a lot to like minimize it. I still check in. We have a safety plan we put in place immediately. Um, I check in on, on those thoughts to see if they're, you know, if they've turned into anything, if we've taken any action toward them. That's moving up from the low toward medium, right? Then if we have the thoughts and we have a plan and then we have the means, you know, I have a ton of patients who have, you know, have means and I was going to say what it was, but then I figured I probably shouldn't. Um, They'll have things like that around the house, things that they could harm themselves with, but there's no intent. And to me, that's a medium risk. And if there's intent, then we're high. The reason that I talk it through like that is that's my process. That's how I deal with it with my patients. The way I was taught in school legally, ethically, and therapeutically is to do the least amount of, not intervention, because you should always be doing interventions, but it's like, we don't want to put you in the hospital just because you have suicidal thoughts. That doesn't always mean that you need to be kept safe, right? We want to put a safety plan in place. 
They want to do some check-ins if we think it's getting worse. We want to make sure we have extra support, maybe have an extra session one week when we know we're going through a really tumultuous time, right? There's some things that we can do to keep it and prevent those suicidal thoughts from getting into a high-risk situation, okay? Because once we're in that high-risk Almost any therapist or psychiatrist or any mental health professional is going to consider a 5150, if not, I've already enacted it. Now, that's the the way I was trained. That's the last thing we want to do. We want to do all the things leading up ahead of time. But sometimes people get scared. I want you to know that a lot of times um, some therapists can be so afraid of action being taken against their license because legally we are mandated to keep you safe. We know we're supposed to do our best to uh, it, well, I forget the phrasing, but it's something like reasonable steps to protect you or others, right? You can be a danger to someone else too. Um, if we don't take those reasonable steps within a reasonable time frame, we can be held liable and we can lose our license or get a strike against us, all that kind of things. And so people will want to protect that. And other people just get scared in general. Maybe they don't have a ton of experience with suicidal thoughts. Because I've dealt with BPD patients a long, like, you know, I deal with eating disorder, self-injury, and that includes a lot of borderline personality disorder. I deal with a lot with suicidal thoughts and ideations and plans and things like that. And so I've gotten pretty comfortable talking about it and assessing and making sure my patients have stayed safe. Now, knock on wood, I've never had to 5150 someone and we've always been able to manage it on the outpatient basis. But, you know, I have also had patients go inpatient because of this, meaning a higher level of care for a period of time to keep them safe. So I feel like it's with the, I work with the relationship and I feel like that is better. Um, but some people who don't have that much experience can get scared and so they can take action maybe more quickly than I would and that can be, I think, traumatizing and damaging to the relationship, the therapeutic relationship, okay? So that's kind of how I gauge it from low, medium to high risk. Now, there was a comment on this that says, as an add-on, I've always had a plan and, a th- and thoughts, but no intent unless something really, really bad happens like my child passing away or my husband. I have it as a just-in-case. A lot of people have that. I want to address this in therapy, but I don't want to go to grippy sock jail. That's totally fair. I think a good way to bring this up to kind of see what your therapist is like is to say that you used to have these kinds of thoughts. Oh, you know, I've always had kind of suicidal thoughts and like I have a plan, like a loose plan, but I don't have any intent. I don't have the means, you know, um, and I just don't know why I've always had this like as a just in case. I mean, I feel like even just the way you approached it with me, you could just say it as it's hap- as if it's happening. You don't have to pretend it was in the past, but you can. Pretending things happen in the past can help a therapist not feel like it's active. If you're not worried, because this is how I deal with my patients. If you're not worried, I'm not worried. Now, I know you're like, but Katie, sometimes I'll be like high risk and I won't be worried. That's a lie. My patients who are high risk and have like plan means intent... It might not, worried might not be the right word, but in a deep, dark pit, feeling helpless, hopeless, yes. And that is scary. To say that even getting to the place where you might consider taking your own life, to say that that's not traumatizing is a lie. It is incredibly traumatizing. Um, And it's a place none of us really, we want to be, right? And so I, I really think that telling your therapist about it in the way you told me is going to be fine. But if you're really scared about that and you don't want to go to grippy sock jail, like you said, meaning the hospital, if you guys don't want to know what that means, it made me giggle. It's, you know, being 5150. You could say that like, you know, in the past you have felt this way and you want to talk about it. You could bring it up that way. And you could say, I don't, I don't assume, 
you know, since these are past thoughts, you're not going to send me to the hospital. You can ask them and you can even ask them questions without telling them anything. You can look through probably your paperwork that they had you sign or fill out online before you saw them, read through it. What does it say? We have certain protocol and I would just ask them what their protocol is. Say, you know, in the past I have had some suicidal thoughts pop up here and there. Can we talk about that or am I going to be like hospitalized? You know, you can ask straight up. I know it sounds kind of scary to even say it that way, but we're not saying that they're current and therefore there's no current risk. And so then we should be able to talk about it with our therapist and find out what their policies are. Like I'm pretty clear and open with my patients about when I would put them in the hospital and when I would feel like I didn't have a choice and what the steps are leading up to it. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a patient through that and said, just know that if if we don't have a safety plan in place, then we're going to have to do text check-ins. And if that doesn't work for you, I'm going to have to call someone that lives with you or can go check on you yourself. So I'm going to need you to sign saying that you understand that, right? These are all like necessary steps that I would take, each one getting closer and closer to essentially breaking confidentiality, which is something I never want to do. Because 5150 in a patient not only could be traumatizing, but I'm breaking their confidentiality. I'm I'm putting them in the hospital, right? People are going to see you, the EMTs are going to show up or the pet team or whoever it is, the police, and they're going to take you to the hospital. And so those people are going to know that you're seeing me, that you're my patient, that's breaking confidentiality. They're going to know you're dealing with suicidal thoughts, again, breaking confidentiality, right? And we can't do that legally or ethically as mental health professionals, unless the risk outweighs the, the like, not the gain, but like, if the risk is too high, then we're, then we can do it. Am I making sense? I'm trying to help make it as clear as possible. But I think that, you know, those steps are the steps that we follow. And I would never just jump to one unless a patient was, you know, something horrible to happen. They weren't acting like themselves. They weren't uh, showing up for therapy. They weren't call, uh, texting or calling me back. You know, I had no other option. Um, and I luckily have not had to do that. So tell your therapist and ask about it. Ask about their policies. What steps do you take? How how does... We could even make up a story. Say, I had a friend that was telling me their therapist kind of threatened putting them in the hospital. And be like, why would they do that? They kind of made me scared. Like, if I ever said anything, you know, I don't want that to happen. And you could just bring it up and, and then see and be like, they'll probably tell you and say, well, what would be the steps? How would we work about through that? Just ask. You can be curious. It doesn't have to be about you until we get those answers. So we feel okay. <sighs> we can breathe and we can be honest. And I think part of that is why I don't jump to conclusions with these things. And I would talk with my patients and I really lean on that relationship that I have with them because I want my patients to feel like they can talk to me about this. I don't want them feeling like they can't and that I'm going to throw them in the hospital. That's just not a safe, you know, that's not a good relationship. And so I've always really leaned into that versus um, putting someone in the hospital, which is probably why I haven't had to do that before. Again, knock on wood. Okay. I hope that makes sense and is clear and answers your question. But let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well. A little backstory. I struggled with sexual abuse in the past from an older sibling when I was about five. I've struggled with it my whole life, and I've tried to go to therapy in high school because I developed anxiety and depression, but I stopped going because I wasn't really ready to deal with it. I'm 24 now, and I just started therapy again because I've been having flashbacks from my trauma, and I think I may have developed an eating disorder, or maybe I just have some disordered eating habits. 
I've struggled a little bit with food my whole life, but last year I lost a lot of weight in a half a year because of intermittent fasting slash restricting. I know I don't even call it intermittent fasting. I call it restriction. Um, I know it's like the trendy thing now, but I frankly think it's bullshit. It's, it's a way to restrict. I'm super picky with food and I don't love trying new things. And I'm wondering if you think I have an eating disorder. And if you think I should bring it up to my therapist, and how should I do that? I really like my therapist and I don't want to be referred out. Thank you for everything you do. Okay, there's a couple of things going on here. Now, for the backstory, knowing that we had sexual abuse in our past from an older sibling when you were five, as well as the fact that we have anxiety and depression happening, and that we haven't, you know, this is like pretty much our first foray into therapy. Although you said you tried to go into high school, um, you know, but it, well, you weren't really ready to deal with it. So this is the first time, you know, you started therapy again for real. And the fact that you're having flashbacks or your trauma and everything's kind of coming up, we're reaching out for other coping skills. And I think food has landed as one of those. Now, is this an eating disorder? Possibly. It sounds definitely like eating disorder behavior. And the fact that you've lost a lot of weight and you're restricting and not eating, you can call it intermittent fasting again. I just don't even think that's a real word. I call it restriction. Now, if we're restricting and we're losing a lot of weight in a very short period of time, that's not good for us. And so I would tell your therapist that you find yourself as a result, this is the way I would phrase it, as a result of trying to talk through and process this trauma, I become so dysregulated that I've been using food as a way to cope. And I've never done that before. Be honest. And maybe you have. I don't know. I'm just from what I know. I've never done this before, but in the last six months, I find myself like restricting, you know, we're doing intermittent fasting. I've lost a lot of weight. It's not very good for me. And I don't know why I'm doing this. That's kind of the truth, right? We haven't done this before. Um, we feel like this is like coming up now and we don't know why. Maybe we've developed these habits recently. I think it's just the lack of coping skills. And so I would tell your therapist in that way, like, I don't really know. I don't know why this is happening. I would start paying attention. Well, I mean, let your therapist know, see what they say, and let's work through it that way. Now, I don't think they're going to refer you out unless they strictly do not work with eating disorder patients. I don't know if they've ever told you that. I don't think any therapist has a hard and fast rule where like, I don't work with X, Y, or Z. We definitely have our specialties and things that we're not as good at treating. Like you guys know, I don't, um, I'm, I don't do like specific to OCD type treatment. I also don't uh, work with autistic patients. I mean, I would, but when they're specifically looking for tools to better their, you know, ASD symptoms, I would want them to see a specialist because I'm not that, right? I'd want you to get the best help. And so, but can I do a lot of that work? And can I actually read up and, you know, increase my knowledge on those certain subjects? Yes, of course I can. And I've done that for many of my patients. Um, one in particular, I remember, was really struggling with social anxiety in a level I hadn't seen before. And so I took a CEU course. I uh, bought some books. I attended like this group uh, journal club with other mental health professionals so I could ask questions there. I did my work so that I could assist her um, and ended up working out. And I think it was beneficial. So don't think that you're just going to get referred out. Therapists, I like a challenge. I like to learn something new. And I think a lot of therapists are like that. So just let them know. I'm not sure where this is coming from. I think it's a coping skill and that it's been happening recently. Okay. Now, 
because it's a coping skill and we don't have others, I'd encourage you to, I mean, you can hop on YouTube, 25 coping skills, Katie Morton, look up the video um, or someone could put it in the comments. It has a ton of different options for distractions when we can't even focus, we can't do anything else. We just need to like get ourselves out of crisis so that we maybe eat or don't overeat or whatever. Um, there's those distraction-based ones. And then there's process-based ones. And we're like, I think I'm just full of emotion and I've distracted enough that I feel like I'm in my body. I'm going to do some of these other types of coping skills. And those are things like, you know, calling your therapist, calling a friend, journaling, things like that. So let's get you some other coping skills on board so that we don't have to use that one because it's not really, it's not helping and it's not going to make things better. Okay. There's a comment on this that says, I too have been doing intermittent fasting for about nine months. I can't tell you how much I hate that word. <laughs> um, recently, I've doubled down on fasting and exercise and I dropped a lot of weight. I don't want this to be an eating disorder. It sounds like it might already be. Something about this feels shameful and I don't want to bring it up with my therapist because I can't risk being referred out. I just can't restart building trust with someone new and I don't want to quit losing weight yet because it's an eating disorder. He likely suspects something since I've accidentally made comments about food when I was frustrated in session. Like once I told him I was mad at myself because I've been eating for three weeks straight. He looked at me and said, well, most of us have been eating for the last three weeks. So he he's aware at some level. And I inadvertently began complaining about how all my family meetups seem to revolve around food and it drives me crazy. Do you think he suspects? Of course he does. But your eating disorder doesn't want him to. So it's that's why you're asking that way. Because you're like, I hope he doesn't know because we want to keep doing it because we think it's making things better, but it's really not. And he'll bring it up or will he wait for me to bring it up? I'm working on processing being raped and I suck at it. Fasting and weight loss make me feel good for a change, empowered even. It isn't a problem in my opinion, it is a problem. It's this like faux sense of control. Eating disorders give us this like, oh, but I can control this one thing because everything else feels like really out of control. I'm going to control this. And the thing that I can never express enough is that it is the most out of control thing in your life right now. I know you don't accept that. Eating disorders like, no, I have so much control. Well, then why can't you stop? Then why don't you get to decide what you want to eat and when you want to eat? How come you can't listen to your body when it tells you it's hungry? How come you can't stop when you're full? You know, it doesn't matter what type of eating disorder we have. We can't stop. That's why it's an eating disorder. I, I mean, I know a lot of people don't like the word disorder and it can feel very, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever kind of word people want to use to describe it. I've heard all sorts of things, but either way, it's a problem, right? It, it's not, it gives us something else. Here's the truth. It gives us something else to focus on so that we don't have to focus on the other shitty things. That's all it does. It's not in under control at all. Eating disorders rage out of control for years. That's why we need help to stop and we can't stop on our own. I know that's it's tough love, but sometimes we need to hear it. And I want you to understand that that's what's happening. You you said you could still stand to lose a few pounds. It will always tell you that, by the way. The, the goalpost will keep moving. It's never enough. We're never sick enough when it comes to an eating disorder. We, we've never binged enough. We've never restricted enough. We've never gotten to X number of pounds. We've never, you know, never whatever. You can always add another thing. It'll, it's always going to tell you that you have to do more to be sick enough. And I'm here to tell you that you don't, you're already sick enough. This is a full-blown eating disorder and it's a coping skill. There's no shame around it. There's nothing wrong with you. You're just trying to cope and you don't know what else to do. 
And so the eating disorder feels like something else to do. It's a distraction, essentially. So let's continue reading. I didn't even finish. I'm sorry. I got I got riled up. Okay. It says, fasting and weight loss makes me feel good for a change, empowered even, right? That faux sense of control. It isn't a problem in my opinion. I could stand to lose a few pounds. Plus, I don't have nearly as many flashbacks or dissociative episodes when I'm fasting and my mood has improved because it's a distraction. Because just for a second, consider with me, would there be any psychological reason why fasting and, you know, um, I guess, I don't know if you're working out or whatever, why not eating would improve our mood and lower our flashbacks? Is there any psychological reason? Maybe even any neurological reason? No. You know what it is? is when our body feels like it's not getting fed and it goes into, you know, starvation mode or whatever you want to call it, it focuses all of its energy on trying to get us food. So it doesn't have any other energy to consider processing your trauma, to help you manage those flashbacks. It essentially is going to keep you alive. And that's the goal our body goes into like survival mode and that's what it's going to focus on. So your mood hasn't really improved. You've just uh, stuffed down the trauma deeper. We've just repressed it again so that we can continue in our life. Now that might mean that in therapy, you're moving too fast. Maybe we're trying to process too quickly. And so we're looking for other coping skills because it's it's overwhelming. We feel like we might be re-traumatized. That's something to tell your therapist if you feel like that's the case. Or it might be that we don't have any other coping skills. One of my biggest frustrations, I think, with therapists who maybe aren't trauma-informed is they don't spend enough time helping us navigate and build up resources to calm our system before we get into the trauma processing. I feel like there needs to be more time spent where our therapist helps us understand, you know, what our experiences are like, oh, I clench my fists when I get really maxed out or I start to sweat or my breathing gets shallow. Like, I know that's some somatic stuff. And for some of my trauma folks are like, absolutely not. But at the very least, have you try out some coping skills to see if they're helpful? Meaning like going for a short walk, petting your dog, uh, organizing something in your kitchen, right? These can be distraction-based. These can be process-based. Can we try journaling for a week? Like really give it a go and see if it helps have your patients try those things. We need to all try those things so that by the time we do the trauma processing, we have a bunch of skills to kind of help us manage what can come up when that happens. Like everybody knows that when you come out of therapy for quite a few hours and maybe even a day or two, we can feel really emotionally vulnerable. And so if we have to go back into a stressful environment like work, school, uh, roommate situation, living at home, then we can feel like we could be hurt again or we could be overwhelmed or whatever because we feel kind of ripped open and a little vulnerable. And so we can find ourselves looking for other coping skills to deal with what comes up from that. And that's what I think is happening here is we're like trying to work on it in therapy. We have no coping skills, so we've turned to food. Does this make sense? I hope so. Now, the person said, although my period stopped for a couple of months, that's not good. I like being able to change my body. Of course, it gives you that false, false sense of control. It says, yeah, I just realized how bad all of this sounds because it's an eating disorder. I wouldn't say it sounds bad. I would say it's it's coming from a, a mental illness place, but I actually feel really good. What's wrong with me? You didn't have any other way to cope. We're using food to cope. Please let your therapist know. Um, yeah, it can get better and there's nothing wrong with you. There's no need to feel embarrassed or shameful about this. Again, I see it as a coping skill in the same way people use all sorts of things. 
people who have healthy coping skills to lean on, they use those a lot. That could mean that they journal a lot or they need a lot of alone time or they spend a lot of time talking with a couple of their really close friends or they have extra sessions in therapy, right? Or those of us who don't have any coping skills, we look for them. We're like, I don't even know what that means. What? And no one ever taught us. We're like, oh, I used to run as a kid to feel better. So we start running. Um, Or maybe I start drinking, using drugs. Maybe I start restricting my food. Maybe I start binging. Maybe I use sex as a way to to deal. Maybe I overshop and overspend. There's a zillion things that I can do to try to help myself feel better and to kind of give me that dopamine hit. We're trying to trigger that reward center in our brain that makes us feel better, but it's incredibly, incredibly short-lived because I think anybody with an eating disorder would agree that when you aren't able to use it, that voice in your head gets really fucking nasty really fast. And you can't tell me that not having control over what you eat for, you know, 12 hours a day, that it's a normal response to have that kind of nastiness going on in your head. We might even lash out at other people as a result too, by the way, um, because it's like that coping skill is getting taken away. And then we don't want to be left with how we feel. So we like, we do anything we can lash out to hold on to it. Does that make sense? So speak up and reach out and get some support. A great book that I love for just like starting that conversation with yourself and your body about eating disorders is called Eating in the Light of the Moon. It's a beautiful book. It's on my Amazon. It's in my Amazon shop, um, amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. Check it out. I think it's really, really great. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hey, Katie, so I'm a full-time college student getting my BA in psychology. Yay. I'm married and living my best, living my life the best as I can. I'm diagnosed with complex PTSD and generalized anxiety disorder, and I'm California sober. When I read this, as of like, I was a Californian for many, many moons. I was like, oh yeah, so you smoke weed. That's like, or whatever you want to call it, pot, weed. I don't know what people call it these days. Um, But it just made me laugh because I knew exactly what that meant. And then there was the explanation. It says, I don't drink or do drugs and my caffeine intake's really low, but I do partake in cannabis daily. That is California sober. I don't know if anybody, maybe it's just something us Californians know about. People will say that. Like I have a lot of friends who are California sober. Okay. So I believe I function okay with it, especially during school. I've managed 4.0 in college. Amazing. And am able to do everyday responsibilities. It has helped me get through therapy sessions, but I never told my therapist that I've used cannabis before session. What are your thoughts about taking cannabis before therapy? Should I tell my therapist? What are your thoughts on using cannabis daily, even when I'm able to function with everyday life? Thanks, Katie. You're awesome. Of course. Um, okay. I have a couple of thoughts. Now, cannabis on its own doesn't really worry me. I have a couple of like caveats to that. Now I do know, and I'd have to see if there's more current research. The good thing about, you know, cannabis, weed, marijuana, whatever you want to call it, becoming legal in different states is that more research is being done on it. Now I know before we were concerned about cannabis use affecting our ability to process trauma. Now, do I know if that still rings true? I don't. I've had tons of friends and patients use cannabis to manage social anxiety um, or to help them focus or to a bunch of different things, right? Um, and we've heard of it being used for pain and things like that and to increase hunger for people who are struggling with that, whether it's like due to cancer treatments or things like that. I think there are a lot of wonderful uses for it. And I don't, I'm not like, no, it's bad. 
but I do wonder about the ability to process. And if you think therapy is still benefiting you, because my worry is that because I still kind of see cannabis as like, we can think of it as medication because you're able to function and it's helping you feel better. But I always wonder or worry about it affecting that processing ability. And if we're trying to reprocess, because you said complex PTSD, but generalized anxiety disorder, I'm, I'm not surprised it's helping you. I just want to make sure that you feel like you're able to make progress in therapy and it's not standing in the way of you reprocessing. Again, there might be more current research I'm just not aware of. I should dig into that. Um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I would tell your therapist, I assume you're in California, so it's legal there as well. Um, but I would tell your therapist about it just so they know, because they might know more current research and we should see what they think. Because if they're like, ooh, this could be preventing you from doing X, Y, or Z with me, um, on those days, can you not? And they might ask you for that. But I don't really, at face value, I don't see there, see any problem with this. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But as a therapist, I would want to know. So at the very least, I would, you know, I'd want to track how often you're using it. You're, if you're not on any other medication too, because I do know that I've had patients, especially my bipolar patients, when they're on a mood stabilizer and an atypical, if you throw in cannabis in there, it can sometimes throw them into a manic episode. Not always. Obviously, everyone's different. I just get a little concerned with stuff like that. We want to make sure that it's not like fighting against medication or making things harder. But other than that, I don't think there's anything wrong. Um, I can see it as like medication for you. If that's what gets you through and allows you to function, arguably, I could say it has less side effects than medication out there. So, that, you know, it's worth a shot. Okay. Yeah, I think that's all the questions. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Moving on to question number five. This question says, hi, Katie, I have ASD or autism spectrum disorder and depression. I struggle a lot with identifying my own emotions. Nevertheless, I know that there are some very intense and painful emotions buried deep inside or deeply inside of me. I don't really know what sort of emotions this emotional wall consists of, but every time I try to approach it, even in therapy, I'm completely overwhelmed. I lose my ability to speak, although I can still think. And I try to avoid tackling these emotions the best that I can. I also get startled very easily, up to the point that I scream if there's an unexpected noise in my room. Do you think this could be some sort of unresolved trauma? As far as I'm concerned, I didn't have any trauma, and I grew up happily, despite me having many arguments with my older brother. My therapist wants to start exposure therapy to approach these buried emotions. He didn't mention trauma, but could it still be trauma? What do you think? Thanks for all that you do. Um, I guess it could be trauma, but I do know, again, I'm not a specialist in ASD, but I do know, I think it's called alexithymia. Isn't that the word when you struggle to identify or feel your emotions? I know that that can come as a part of autism. So your ASD could be what is kind of blocking this. And I'd love to hear from everybody else in the autistic community because I, again, it's not my specialty. I don't want to pretend that I know everything about it. And obviously everyone's experience is different, but I know that there is a difficulty with emotions. Um, I know that we talk a lot from the outward expression when it comes to people with ASD that like, oh, you know, uh, making eye contact is hard and, and showing affection can be hard and all these things can be more difficult, but that doesn't mean that we're not human and we don't have emotions, right? And so I think there's definitely a conversation that needs to be had more often 
we talk about ASD and the way that it feels, right? And I think your experience from what I've heard from our community, and again, correct me in the comments if I'm wrong, I, I love to learn more, but I know that uh, ASD can often come along with this difficulty identifying and expressing emotions and feeling like they're very overwhelming. And my encouragement for you would be to tell your therapist about this, sounds like they already know, but talk to them. I. I don't know if it's trauma. I don't want to automatically say no, but the fact that you don't remember anything, it doesn't really seem like it's a situation that's triggering or certain, usually with my trauma patients, there are certain triggers that like maybe a scent, a sound, a smell, or a certain type of situation or a type of person or something that is triggering. And that gives us an indication that there was a trauma and we can kind of dig from there. But when it comes to, to this situation, you feel like there's an emotional wall, I, especially with knowing that you have an ASD diagnosis, I veer more towards thinking that this could be something to do with dysregulation. Because ASD comes with such a high level of dysregulation and a difficulty like calming our nervous system down, right? Because we can be like a frayed wire and it can everything can feel very overwhelming. It's like, like a noisy restaurant can be like the death of us. It's just too much, right, for our system. I'm wondering if that's kind of this experience, just an internal version of that. Am I making sense? I hope so. And so my best advice, hopefully your therapist understands ASD. I would assume that they do. I think that I would move into working on some ways to calm ourselves down, ways to regulate. I don't know if, you know, there are certain things that feel good to you, like, you know, even rubbing your arms or rocking or any kind of that behavior. That's all fine and dandy and it can be calming. Um, Maybe we do stomp our feet or shake out or, or we just need quiet for a little bit. Whatever it is that helps you, let's try to come up with those things so that the, and I'm assuming your therapist will do that because exposure therapy begins by coming up with ways to calm our system down. But let's do that. And my my gut doesn't say trauma, but I don't want to throw it out. We can always dig in and find out more. Um, but I think that's where my gut goes to. So that's really what I think about it. It sounds like you're working with a great therapist. I've, I too think exposure therapy could be beneficial. So let's not think that, you know, obviously exposure therapy works really well on trauma, but it might also help you approach this kind of emotional wall where you just feel like, I just can't. It's too overwhelmed. I get overwhelmed, right? we need to, it doesn't mean we can't approach this. It means we have to go slower. We have to have our resources and you'll get there. I I think that this is going to be great. I think exposure therapy is a great tool. I, I agree with your therapist. And I think we just have to make sure we're set up properly with a ton of resources and ways to cope. Does that make sense? Okay. There was a comment on this as I'm autistic and I struggle with emotions as well. Oftentimes I know or feel that there's something stuck or not right, but I can't quite put my finger on what it is. I want to let myself feel the emotion, but I just can't access it. Most of the time, I can't cry or feel the pain, even when I know it's there. And I'm talking about my very difficult past. In therapy, I even smile, laugh when talking about traumatic things. Only very rarely with one specific psych nurse can I cry and feel the upset. How can I access those emotions to actually process them through? How can I let myself cry in therapy? My question for this person is, what was it about that specific psych nurse? Because when we are able to express and feel things that we aren't normally around a certain person, I want to know what characteristics it is about that person that we find so safe. Because for some reason, we're not able to do it anywhere else. So there's something specific about this person. I would be very curious about that. 
and see, then my goal really is to talk with your therapist about that or to find someone who shares those characteristics, things that we're looking for. Um, because my my spidey sense is that we don't really feel safe anywhere else. And we might be able to create this in our own therapy, but we also might want to tell our therapist about this and that we really can't. And we it was only this one psych nurse and we realized that's because of X, Y, and Z. She reminded you of this, you know, I don't know. Um, and if we're able to find a different therapist, if we don't think that one's going to work, we could do that too. But I, I really think there's more to this. I think there's something about that specific psych nurse that was, that, helped you feel at least neutral, if not safe enough to dive into those emotions. And it could have been the way that she engaged with you. It could have been she reminded you of your mom, your grandma, your sister. Um, it was maybe finally a person who you felt really saw you. You know, I don't know. Let's dig into that because I feel like we've had that one positive experience. Let's learn from it. Let's see if we can recreate that in other situations. I know you're like, but it won't be the same you might be surprised. We just need to figure out what it is about this person. And if we could even, this might even be a way in too. We can imagine we're talking to her when we journal. Can we cry that way? I know we're like, oh, I want to cry in therapy or, oh, I should be doing this, that, or the other. We got to start somewhere. And most of the time we feel the safest or at least the most neutral when we're on our own right? In our own safe space, like in our bedroom, in our home by ourselves, whatever it is. And so, you know, giving yourself an opportunity to feel that and to allow yourself to maybe cry or process it on your own when you feel okay is going to be best. So just give yourself a chance to do that and see if that kind of helps unlock something. Okay. Um, okay. And then we'll work into the therapy, but let your therapist know this is going on, talk it through with them. And we'll get there. You don't have to cry in therapy, but it sounds like you'd like to. So we'll work our way there. Okay. There was another comment that says, as an add-on, how do you start identifying or feeling emotions? I have trauma and possibly am autistic too. And it's been the single thing that's hindering my process and there my progress in therapy. I can name them cognitively. Like if someone hurt me or the trauma story, that means that I probably will have felt sad but I don't actually feel the sadness. I do dissociate though, which I find only makes it harder. Of course, because you're more disconnected. Um, it might be, I mean, it could be the, like I said, like the alexithymia or part of the autism spectrum disorder, but trauma also, we're talking about disconnection, disconnection, disconnection. It can be really hard for us to get in there and to understand and to actually feel them. Now, there are a couple things that we can do. Number one is start writing out what we think emotions feel like. Are we able to do that? I don't know if we'll be able to, but this is just a potential place to start. Like if an emotion, and maybe start with emotions that aren't so crazily uh, like charged for you. There are some emotions that are going to be harder and some that are easier. The ones that seem easier, let's start there. So go to, I think it's feelingswheel.com or feelingswheel.org. Just Google feelings wheel, pull that up, start looking through them. Pick ones that seem easy and let's every day do two or three. And what I mean by that is write down that emotion word. So let's say the emotion is um, excited, okay? What does excited feel like to you? If we can't tap into it, we're like, I don't know, what would it feel like? How is it portrayed in uh, TV shows or film? Can we go that route? What's it look like? What do we assume that person's feeling? Sometimes it helps to have it be external for now. 
let's see where we can go with this and start going through the emotions, you know, like two or three a day. Um, how do we think that feels inside? What do we think the thoughts are that are associated with it? If we can't do it for ourselves, how do we see it portrayed? Let's do that because sometimes we can't even identify or feel them ourselves because they're so foreign. We've never felt like it was okay to have emotions, to have feelings, to have a reaction to something. Maybe we were told that we were too much all the time. Especially if we have trauma and we're autistic, it's going to be, it could be a little bit trickier. It might take us a little time to get back in touch. Um, Another thing that we can do to start, so we'll start by trying to figure out what emotions even feel like, look like, what do we, how do we define them? But I also want you to start trying to bring yourself back into your body. Yes, I know that's uncomfortable. Yes, I know with trauma, you're like, and I dissociated. Can we start like in the shower with the water feeling it hit, or maybe not even in the shower, maybe that's too triggering even just to not, to not be clothed. Maybe we can put our hands under the water in the sink when it's cold. And can we feel it go up our hand and down our hand and up our arm to our elbow and down? Can we feel that? Can you tell me what sensations that is? Where do we, is it, you know, how does the cold travel? Can we feel it come across our skin? You know, then we can maybe take it to the shower or maybe we could put lotion on and feel what's it feel like in our feet. And I know some of that stuff sounds kind of silly, but when we're so disconnected, even just coming into our bodies for any amount of time can be really difficult. So let's try to do it and try to hold that connection as long as we can. And all of that together is going to get us to a place where we can begin to not only identify emotions and define them, but also start to understand how they are experienced in our bodies. Because that's a huge piece of it that people don't always talk about. They're like, oh, we should identify them. We should be talking about our emotions. Uh, we can't if we're not in touch with our bodies at all. Because that's like half of the battle. I mean, yes, we the thoughts are helpful. And yes, okay, a definition that's helpful. But there's still that huge key piece of like, well, I might feel anxiety. Like most of anxiety symptoms other than like racing thoughts are like sweaty palms, the racing heart, can't catch my breath, right? All those things feeling like can't sit still. Those are all bodily things. So let's get in, get into it that way and see, see where that gets us. Okay. Let's start there. Okay. Okay. Now let's move on to question number six. This question says, Hey Katie, what are the consequences of growing up in an unsafe environment with a narcissistic parent? Is it ever possible to heal completely or will these wounds stay forever, even after therapy? Will I feel the marks of this childhood my whole life? I'd be very grateful if you can give me an overview of the impact of a narcissistic upbringing and what it can have on a child's life and how it has shown years later. Thanks for all you do. Of course, well, it's going to be different depending on the person. So I don't want you to take this these thoughts that I have about it and think if yours doesn't line up that something's wrong. No. But usually what it means when we have a narcissistic parent is that number one, they never met us emotionally, frankly, because they can't. So there was never like a, we never really felt held by them or like connected and like safe, right? Also, we often feel like we're an extension of them and we can feel like we need to make them proud with everything we do because otherwise they're going to get angry meaning we can walk on eggshells. So we can be an extreme people pleaser. We can find ourselves in our life now thinking that, you know, we read the room of people's emotional experience and worry that we're going to set somebody off. So we try to do everything just perfectly, even though we don't know what that looks like because everybody's different, right? So we can have high levels of anxiety. Um, 
having narcissistic parent also means there's a lot of manipulation. We can feel like we were led or run by guilt. And so we can struggle to make decisions on our own or to think that we have any right to put ourselves first, hence the people pleasing. You can see how this can affect us. Um, it can also mean that we are like the hypervigilant. You know, I said we read the room. That's kind of part of people pleasing, but also we can be extremely hypervigilant. If our parent was abusive, emotionally, physically, sexually, we can find ourselves like always worried that someone's going to be upset. We can be super, super sensitive to anybody like expressing discontent, like for someone to disagree with us, or if we actually had a fight with someone, it's really difficult for us to come back from that because we don't know how to tolerate that kind of upset. Does that make sense? It's something that we try at all costs to avoid because it's so distressing. So there's a lot of these kinds of consequences or ripple effects. Um, it can make it hard for us to let people in. We can have, you know, avoidant attachment because we're like, you know, it doesn't really feel safe. If I let someone in, they're only going to hurt me. We can be that way where we're like, I kind of prefer to be alone. We can have toxic independence where we think like, I can only count on me. I'm the only one that's going to show up. Um, we can say to ourselves, you know, I'm just an introvert. I prefer being alone, right? We all need connection. Some of us just need less and we need more time to recharge. That's an introvert. This is avoidant, okay? Or we can have anxious attachment where we like always worry that people are going to leave us. We can have like abandonment issues and be really clingy and needy. So I know I'm kind of all over the place, but there are a ton of ways that having an in an unsafe environment with a narcissistic parent, there's a ton of ways that that can affect us, okay? So that's kind of an overview. Now, the questions of, is it ever possible to heal completely? Yes, 100%. Is it difficult? Yes. All therapeutic work is, especially when we're going all the way back to childhood and we're trying to like redraw the blueprints for relationships and our life because our parent gave us ones that were totally jacked up and are like filled with abuse and and bad, uh, no boundaries, um, just complete dysfunction. So we kind of have to throw that away, which is going to be horribly uncomfortable because that's all we know, right? We kind of have to relearn or maybe like erase and like redraw these blueprints to show us um, having healthy boundaries and being able to say no and being able to say yes when we want and like figuring out what that means, right? We're going to have to relearn some things that we should have learned when we were a child. But I want you to know that no one's childhood is perfect. Everybody has some part of their blueprints that are fucked up that we're, they're trying to redraw or rework or re-understand or, right, or relearn. And don't think that you're broken. There's nothing wrong with you. This is what your parent passed on to you and you don't want it. Let's, you know, view it from that lens, right? Sometimes we can want to say it's something wrong with us and I'm broken, but I want you to not accept that. We have to reframe it. Nothing's wrong with you. Your parents passed on a shitty blueprint and you've been trying to make sense of it and it doesn't make sense. So now we're going to redraw it. And so it takes time. It's going to be uncomfortable. Um, whenever we're changing behavior, it's really uncomfortable because we're used to doing the thing that we used to do, right? If we were a parentified child, maybe our narcissistic parent was really aloof and like never around, not consistent. So we took care of our siblings. Then for us to kind of take a step back and be like, you know what? I don't need to be in control here. I don't have to do everything. Other people can stand up and, you know, do something for a change going to feel very uncomfortable. We're going to want to go into that old role. But if we hold back, 
manage the upset. You know, there are ways, almost like exposure therapy that can help with this, but just talking it out with your therapist and in realizing even the things that I mentioned, which one of those rang true, maybe write those down and bring it to therapy. I think these are some of the effects from my parent, you know, from growing up in this narcissistic environment. I don't think very highly of myself and I struggle in relationships to speak up and saying no is really hard. I don't have boundaries. You know, I walk on eggshells everywhere. Um, And then we can start working on it and be patient with yourself. But yes, you can change. Yes, you can heal completely. That's why I get into, that's why I got into what I do and why I keep doing what I do is because I know it's possible and God, it can be magical. So stick with it. It took years for you to learn this unhealthy pattern. So know that you can relearn a new healthier one. It just takes, it takes time. It takes effort and it takes a lot of self-compassion. Okay. Be patient. I know it's hard. I try to change my own behaviors over the years. Like I told you guys, I'm a recovering people pleaser. And when I'm tired or stressed, I apologize all the time. And I hate it that I go into that so easily, but that's my weak spot, right? So I got to build my muscle up of my not such a weak spot, (laughs) if that that makes sense. Um, Okay, so I hope that that helps. Um, There's also a ton of good books that I think help with a narcissistic parent. And there's tons of podcasts and other creators online who create content about narcissism and healing. Um, I forget his name. His first name is Les, but Dr. Les, um, he has a a podcast about narcissism. And there's also uh, another Dr. Romney. She has a channel on YouTube where she does specifically like healing from narcissistic abuse. Um, Those are two that I can think of. And, you know, those are just some more resources for you to have and a community to join with people who understand. Okay. There's a comment on this that says, is it also possible to heal from being sexually abused by a parent? How much should someone how much should someone expect from therapy? I'm currently on um, doing EMDR to manage the PTSD symptoms, especially the flashbacks and body memories. And I feel like I had two lives growing up. The one that took place during the day where everything looked perfect. And those nights when I was made to sleep with him. He turned into a different person and it's been more than 20 years and I still have to pretend like nothing happened because he's my dad and I love him in spite of his mistakes. During the day, he was in fact a great dad and it makes it even more painful because the love and the deep pain he caused coexist inside of me and make me feel crazy and guilty and betrayed all at the same time. Is it possible to ever feel normal? I'm so sorry that you went through that and there is it's a struggle when we are harmed by someone who is supposed to take care of us, right? A parent, a mother, a father, when they're supposed to be the ones that are loving and supportive and instead they abuse us, it can, it's, it's conflicting, right? But you did all these things for me and you were so loving and great, but, but there's this. And I know it can feel really crazy, but those two things can exist. It's, it just, we need to make sure that the the, the betrayed, hurt part of us feels like it can be heard. Because what tends to happen when we have a positive experience and a negative experience is that we feel like the negative can't exist, only the positive can, because that's bad and this is good, right? And we can feel like we want to put more emphasis into the good and ignore the bad. And that just represses it more and causes us to feel more shame. And so my encouragement for you is to, if you have the ability to engage in some inner child work. I know you're doing EMDR and I think that's amazing. And I would continue doing it if it feels beneficial for you. If it's not working, it's okay to move on to a different type of therapy. But I really think, and I have an inner child workshop on my website. 
go to katiemorton.com. It's available for purchase now. Um, and we recently lowered the prices of everything to make them the same and also to make them more affordable for people. I know financially things are tough for people right now. Um, so get it while it's hot. Um, but that can be a great place to start also. And just a way to hear slash acknowledge that pain and that hurt and to allow younger you to speak up and to feel like they're actually being listened to and taken seriously. Does that make sense? Because so often we minimize and invalidate and especially because there were like these positive parts, right? No person is ever all bad. And that like 10% or 50% that was good can make it feel like the bad can't exist. And I'm here to tell you it can. We just have to acknowledge it. We need to, that's part of the therapy is acknowledging that icky, dark, bad feeling and processing through that. Because the good stuff's easy peasy. That's not the problem. And we can get into the difficulty with the two, but for right now, let's focus on the hard stuff and that bad stuff. I think that's inner child work as well as the EMDR that you're doing. Um, And I think that EMDR should help and it is possible to heal completely. It's also, it just takes time in therapy. I don't know how long you've been in therapy. Um, I know it's been more than 20 years since it happened, but that's not, that isn't, indicative of the amount of time you spent in therapy. I don't think maybe it is, but it's more about you feeling like you're connected with your therapist. Things are moving forward slowly, but surely. Um, and you feel heard and understood when you're there. We should never feel like we have to make something that happened to us into a bigger deal than it was at the moment when it happened. A therapist should never make us feel like we're being minimized or invalidated on honestly, the opposite should be happening. We should feel very heard and understood and important. And like everything that happened to us, you know, was as bad as we say it was, right? So as long as we're getting those things, give yourself time. It's not time from when the trauma stopped. It's time from when we started actually acknowledging that it was trauma and all of the things that it caused in us, right? The shame, the blame, the guilt, the embarrassment, this spiral of like, who am I? Um, it could make it feel like we can't have boundaries or our boundaries aren't respected. Um, we can go into situations where we become hypersexualized because we're like, I'm taking back control of my sexuality, right? We could not want anybody to touch us because we, you know, we want to take back control in that way. We just have to understand how it's affecting us and work on it there. I think EMDR could be incredibly beneficial. I would encourage you to keep doing it. Um, but if it's not working, there are other types, right? So don't feel like that it's one and done. Um, if it doesn't work, there are other types of therapy, talk therapy, schema therapy, somatic experiencing, um, internal family systems or IFS can be really great. There's a lot out there. There's also trauma-focused CBT or TFCBT that a lot of people found um, helpful. So don't think that, you know, if this doesn't work, that that's all there is, okay? Hang in there. You can heal from it. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hey, Katie, I have a past of sexual trauma and assault and I that I had repressed since it happened, and I have started working through it for the first time in therapy this year. I know that my response to that experience was freezing slash fawning, and I completely dissociated from my body. Every sexual experience that I had after that, I feel that I dissociated from. And now that I'm dealing with what happened, I realize how many times I put myself in similar situations, almost as if I'm trying to prove to myself that I can say no or stop it from happening. But each time I find myself having the same response, even though I can now consciously recognize what's happening. Is there a reason we might put ourselves in the same situation that traumatized us in the first place? Yes, I'll talk about that. If so, how do we heal and stop ourselves from doing that? Okay, 
So uh, good news. Let's start off with some good news, right? Because I'm sorry that you had to go through that. And I hate that we continue to put ourselves in that position. I talk about that in my book, Traumatized. I don't know if you've uh, read it or if you have access to it. You can ask at your local library. It's just called Traumatized and it's by me. Um, I also have an audio book and yeah, all that good stuff. And it, I don't assume it's probably cheaper than it was probably on sale at some point. So get that sale. Um, but the reason that we put ourselves in situations that traumatize us in the first place is because our brain is like, hey, I want to work on this. Hey, I feel safe enough. I want to get through this. Hey, it's like telling us that it's ready to process it. It just doesn't know how to do it. And so it seeks out situations that look very similar. It's like, we can make a difference and we can change this, but we don't have the tools for that yet. So it's like our brain and body are like, hey, Let's get with this. Let's process this. Let's move through this. But we don't have any tools. So we're we're like aimless. Hence why it keeps happening again. Because we don't have any tools to stop us from freezing or fawning. Right? So that's the good news is that we feel we feel good. We feel finally in a place to process it. And so that's really why it keeps doing that. If you're not in therapy, sorry, I'm reading. Yeah, you're first. Okay, started working through it. And so because you're starting to work on it in therapy. That might be why this is coming up because often when we finally open up Pandora's box of our trauma, we can feel overwhelmed by it and we can feel our brains like, okay, time to do it. And we don't have, again, don't have all the tools yet. And so my encouragement would be to tell your therapist this is happening and to try to figure out some ways to check in, right? Like, can we, I guess a better way to describe it would say, can you go back to these if, if you feel safe doing so. If not, do this in therapy. But like one of the more, more recent situations where you found yourself in a in a more another traumatizing situation you didn't mean to be in, can we look back at it early on in that situation? Like when we first met this person or when we first said yes to going to something we didn't want to do, right? What was going on there and what would it have taken for us to make a different decision, Okay. So let's say that this all started because someone asked us to go on a date, but we're not actually ready to date yet. So we should have said no. Or is it something back farther where like a person kind of flirted with us and we were friendly back? Should we have said something at that point? So like, yeah, I'm not really into dating right now. Could we have thrown that out there earlier on? Now, I know that might not be the situation, but I'm just throwing out scenarios, right? Or if we're out with a group and they're like, hey, do you want to go back to my place? And you can be like, no, I'm really tired. Like, how, what would it take for us to be able to do that? Because I know you're like, well, I couldn't do that. I don't. When did we start to feel disconnection from our body where we couldn't make those decisions, right? We kind of just have to be curious. Again, not judgmental. Be a detective about it. What could, what would it have taken in that moment for us to say no or for us to make a different choice. If we feel like we maybe aren't at a position or at a place where we can make a different decision at that moment, could we have a friend who helps with that choice or maybe make sure we go home with them? Or, you know, could we not engage in those types of situations at all for a little while till we feel like we're in a better place? I know this is a shitty answer. And yes, I wish I had like a, oh, do this thing. But the answers are often there in those past experiences. And yes, I know it might be a little touchy, a little traumatizing, a little dysregulating to even think about those situations or to go back into them. But let's see what we can glean from them because it's actually really helpful. And that's where we can learn. Now, let's say we can't touch that. Okay, so you're like, that idea fucking sucks, Katie. I can't do that. 
there are other ways to kind of get in there and try to figure it out. Now, just understanding that right now we may not be in a place to make a better choice because we don't have coping skills. We can like just encourage our therapist to help support us and give us more ways to regulate and more ways to stay grounded. I've talked about grinding techniques on here a zillion times, but here are some. Changing the temperature, like dunking your face in cold water, uh, putting a cold rag on your neck. I don't know, cold is better than hot. Most of my patients start to feel hot when they're like triggered. So cold, drinking cold water, even holding ice cubes can be helpful. Uh, Counting colors, how many things in the room are blue or black or brown. Um, We can do the ABCs. How many things in the room start with letter A, B, C? Do that. Um, Can we uh, stomp our feet? Can we do a full body shake, right? Those are all things that can be really grounding. Let's try those. There's also my video, 25 coping skills. You can hop over there and figure out which ones kind of help you the most. Those are things we can do to try to stay grounded. But if we're in a place where we feel like we don't have any coping skills and nothing's really working or nothing's strong enough, we might need to disengage from some situations that could lead to that. Like I said, like maybe we aren't as social for a little while. I don't ever like to encourage isolation, but maybe we only socialize with a couple people and we bring them over to our house where it's more safe on our, you know, on our own area or our best friend's house or somewhere where we can leave or we can, you know, whatever to make it feel the best to you to allow for us to still get that connection without potentially putting ourselves in the position where we'd feel traumatized again. Yeah, as you heal and as you work through the trauma, you will be able to stay in your body, be grounded, make better decisions, feel more confident. There's a last tool I guess I'll offer is what's called building mastery. It's part of DBT, but really what building mastery is, it's a way to build confidence so that we hopefully, and this is kind of my goal here, is that you'll be able to say no when you mean it. And earlier on, I mean, I mean, we won't, again, don't want to get ourselves to a position where we're already dissociated because then we can't make that decision. We want to do it early on. Um, but building mastery helps build confidence. And so with confidence comes the ability to say no, make different decisions. Um, and that is just picking something that you want to do and getting better at it. Could be something that you're already kind of good at. Let's do that more. You're really good at mountain biking. Let's join some little races. One of my friends who, she has three kids and I think she's 40, how old would she be now? 43? She used to, as a kid, she used to love BMX racing and her and her sister have gotten back into it and she is BMX racing now. And so do something, don't know judgments around what it is. Who cares? Even just the other day I was telling Sean, I was like, man, I used to do plays in high school and stuff. And I'm like, I wouldn't mind getting back into that. Maybe I'll join some like adult theater. Who knows? You've got to be, feel free to be you and to try some new things and to get good at it. Do something that you think you could be good at. Maybe take a cooking class. I don't know. Maybe you learn an instrument. Whatever it is, let's do that because that can help us feel stronger, better about who we are and hopefully able to say no earlier on. I hope that's helpful and makes sense. But you got this, okay? Let's move on to question number eight. This question says, Katie, I have a question that I've wanted to ask for a while, but I've been too embarrassed. I don't even know what to call it. Maybe it's transference, but here's what's happening. I worry about you when a regular video, an AKA or an OTDM is late or there isn't one that week. I worry that something's wrong or that you're hurt. When you do the raw videos, I worry that um, what you're going to say is that it's too much and that you're not going to do this anymore. It started a few months ago, just out of the blue. I talk about and share your videos all the time because A, they're incredibly helpful to me and um, I hope others can also get help. And B, I don't want you to not get enough views and decide that it's not worth doing anymore. I don't think it's a crush though, even though I'm bisexual, but I 
worry or panic that I'll lose you in my life. For context, I have complex PTSD from childhood sexual abuse and I can't afford afford a therapist and I'm a full-time and only caregiver for my mom. Thanks. But this was interesting and a great question. A couple of things going on here. I think it could potentially be transference because if you see me as your therapist, even though, you know, you're not my patient, that can lead to, you know, we have these like parasocial relationships or what we call them, where I haven't met you in person. I don't know. You're not like a friend of mine down the street where we get together all the time, right? However, because we communicate through the internet and you have access to me and we have conversations and you get to also hear my videos and things like that, there's a relationship that's built. And some of that is, I'd even venture to say, isn't really the parasocial. Parasocial is when like we don't know them, but we feel like we do. Like the way I could feel, I guess, about like Chrissy Teigen because I follow her on Instagram or something like that. Um, but relationships get built over the internet now, right? Things are on the internet. Um, and I feel like because of that relationship and maybe your dependence on it, now I don't know. Now this is where I'm like, I'm guessing. Because you can't afford therapy and this is kind of your one outlet for it and like our community, the being reliant on that or being dependent upon that in some way, all of a sudden, maybe you realized that. Maybe I didn't have a video go out or something and that might've triggered it. Because a couple of months ago, I know I was supposed to have a video go out and it went out a day later because we were having an export problem. Maybe that triggered it. I don't know. But then not getting that that connection or that outlet or that community hit, right, could have triggered this worry that it could be taken away. And because of the complex PTSD and things like that, we can be hypervigilant and very sensitive to things like that because it it's hurtful and we don't know how to manage that upset. Does this make sense? I hope so. Now, it could definitely be transference um, in the same kind of idea or same vein because our communities, I try to keep it as loving and as kind of a place as possible. Now, I know there's shit on the internet and I know people can be hateful and people can be hateful to me and it's fine. You know, we can, we're all adults here. We can, we can manage it. Doesn't make it okay, but it's unfortunately part of what we're doing, right? But because the relationships are built and we have this, this relationship, then that finally feels maybe safe or you feel heard or understood in some way, then, you know, then of course we can, have like that fear of abandonment come up. I don't really know if transference is the right word here as I'm even talking this out with you because transference would be like if you thought I was like your mom or your caretaker and maybe you do, you'd have to tell me, but then we can worry that that's going to be taken away. But either way, it's kind of triggered some maybe fear of abandonment, I think. I think that's what I'm getting from this because of the worry that I wouldn't do it anymore or, you know, something's happened to me and I can't do it. I could worry that you would lose that. Um, so yeah, I think, and don't be embarrassed about, we can always talk about these things. I don't want anybody to think that we can't, even if it's relating to me, we can still talk about it. It's okay. Um, I think that a lot of it might come from that and from this this relationship that we have online, whether you want to call it a parasocial relationship, whether you want to call it just a relationship online, that connection in this community is very valuable to you. And the thought that it could be taken away or that I might not continue is, you know, is probably anxiety driven. It could be coming out of your complex PTSD, but it's like that fear of abandonment um, and that's triggered. So yeah, I think that's really kind of where it's coming from. Is Are there any questions here? Sorry, I want to make sure I'm answering your questions. Oh, you said just to know what to call it, but here's what's happening. I think that that's kind of what's happening. Don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. 
I do the best I can. I don't really, I mean, yes, I'd love it if my YouTube videos were higher, the views were higher um, in general, just because it's like, it's what I do and I'd like it to grow, right? And want to reach more people, help more people. But that's just the nature of being online. I've been online for a really long time and I don't have any plans of going anywhere. So don't you worry. Um, OTDM, unfortunately, we're not as consistent with just because of our schedules and Sean and I get really busy and it's like the last uh, thing that we try to do and it sh shouldn't be, but it is, you know, so sometimes it gets pushed. But yeah, I think that that's kind of where that could coming be coming from. Um, you're not losing me. I'm still here, but I would, I do think it's helpful if, if possible for you to kind of maybe journal about this, consider where it's coming from. And if any of the things I said resonated with you, because we, it's okay to have those feelings. It's okay to feel that we just have to figure out where and why, and are there things that we could offer ourselves that we're not, or is there something that we didn't realize was going on? Like what, what caused that, what triggered this, right? You said it's been a few months just out of the blue things that happen out of the blue are never really out of the blue. There's always some kind of trigger. And I would just be curious, not judgmental about it to figure out what triggered that. Um, maybe I said something, maybe a video was late, maybe life has been tumultuous. So you feel like other things aren't as stable as they usually are. Um, yeah, it's okay to talk about this and keep me posted. But I, I don't know if I necessarily think it's so much transference as it is the like fear of abandonment. I think that might be more where this is coming from. But those are just my thoughts. I'd love to hear yours, okay? Final question, question number nine. Says, Katie, how do you know if parental divorce has caused any trauma in someone? Now, I don't think I've talked enough about the effects of divorce and the fact that it can be incredibly traumatizing for both the parents that are getting divorced and the children. Because obviously it's a huge, huge upheaval of life. If you're a kid still living at home, that means that you might have to split your time between houses. If a parent moves away, that's a loss of that relationship. Even if you still see them and talk to them regularly, it's not the same. And we have to grieve that loss. And that's a huge adjustment. An adjustment can be, it can be traumatizing if not managed properly. And it's one of those potentially big T or little T type of traumas that we weather. And the way to know if a divorce has caused trauma is if it's all about our reaction to the thing, right? So if it's a divorce, any conversations about it, any uh, are there any triggers that remind you of it? Or if we're going through it actively, do we find ourselves just like dissociating or like zoning out? Um, do we find, you know, wanting, because think of the the way that we diagnose PTSD. It's avoidance of things that remind us of it, right? It'd be, um, honestly, increased levels of anxiety is what I call it, but like hypervigilance. Now, I know when it comes to divorce, you're like, how can I be hypervigilant? It's more like we can find ourselves acting in certain ways, walking on eggshells, not wanting to disrupt or maybe upset a member of our parents, thinking that we can make it better by being perfect or being kind or keeping things going that it'll somehow improve and they'll get back together or we can you know uh, think that we were the cause of it and we can go into a shame spiral and then we can find ourselves um being super reactive to any kind of comment on how we're doing or how we're how we're taking the divorce does this make sense and so i think in all honesty it would be really i'd be surprised if less than 50% of people who go through a divorce aren't traumatized. 
I think it's at least 50% because it is such a big change in life and it's so dysregulating. There can be a lot of fighting. There can be a lot of lying and manipulation, a lot of abuse. Parents don't realize it, but when you try to put your children you pit them against the other one, right? You want to tell them bad things about their father or their mother, that that's emotional abuse. And I know people do it all the time. And they're like, well, I was just trying to, there's no excuse for using your children in that way. Um, and it's not okay. And if you're a parent that's doing that, stop, recognize what's happening. Talk to your own therapist, get into therapy to process the grief and the trauma that you're experiencing, but don't put it onto your children. Um, they it's this is they have nothing to do with this and you might say but you know we have a high needs child and or we have this kind of child and that did make our relationship you're the parent here yes children are humans and we are responsible for our actions but we're little and we don't even know and if it's a needs thing that we you know that was so too stressful for you guys you know that's on you that's your relationship to cultivate and to grow and to build or not right? I know that's like more tough love, but that's the truth. And so if you find yourself having flashbacks, dissociating, having any kind of symptoms of trauma as it pertains to the divorce, like maybe driving by the courthouse where you had to go for the proceedings, you like dissociate or you find yourself like getting really overwhelmed. Like those are signs that those are all signs of trauma. Um, I'd encourage you to reach out and speak up and talk to a therapist. Divorce, there are a ton of therapists who specialize in like family issues, right? I do know that if your parents had a lawyer that they worked with for the divorce, ask them for referrals. A lot of them have a ton of therapists who specifically work with children through divorce or adults going through divorce, right? So I think that that could be, you know, really, really helpful. And it doesn't even matter how long ago it happened. You might be in your, you know, 40s and you're just now processing it. That's okay. It doesn't mean it's still a trauma. I know sometimes we try to minimize or invalidate thinking like, well, it happened so long ago, blah. Like somebody in a question earlier is like, it's been 20 years. That doesn't matter if we haven't been able to talk about it or process or even acknowledge how hard it was for us how are we supposed to move past it, right? And if our parents got divorced and now we're 40 and we're like, you know, I never engaged in a relationship because I never felt safe. That could be one of those side effects, right? And so we kind of have to dig in and figure out where it's coming from. And anyways, I'm getting off on a tangent, but I want you to know that those are just some of the signs and symptoms. And I have a video about PTSD from, I mean, it's an oldie, but a goodie, but you can uh, watch that. And also my book, Traumatized, walks you through different ways it can express itself. Um, But yeah, I think any of those are signs and symptoms that you've been traumatized by divorce. But speak up and reach out because it does get better, okay? Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you for being part of this community. I love you all so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.